Many moons ago, when the world was young and heroes walked the earth, there was born the History Podcast. And in this world, there was the Beeb. There was Lars Brownworth and a bloke called Mike Duncan, and we heard Mike and knew he was good. And so was spawned a new generation, wherein I was inspired by Robin Pearson, who picked up the mantle of the Roman Empire in Byzantium. Robin, I'm glad to say, is still going strong, is still producing magnificent history and entertainment, and here is a message from him. Hello everyone, this is Robin Pearson from the History of Byzantium podcast. It seems like you enjoy your history recounted to you by an erudite, funny Englishman. Well, I am also an Englishman. And if you like a bit of Roman history, then come join me for a thousand-year epic of incredible highs and devastating lows. Check out The History of Byzantium wherever you get your podcasts, or go to thehistoryofbyzantium.com. For now, back to David. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hello everyone and welcome to the History of England, episode 1.8, Revival. Before I pile ahead, some notices for you. Remember to check out the Agora Podcast Network and the associated website, intriguingly named agorapodcastnetwork.com. And do check out this month's featured Agora podcast, which is the wonderful Tom Daly's American Biography. I think you'll like Tom's podcast because it's about the history of a country through its people, about the lives of people who shaped it, and not necessarily the ones you'd always expect. So, give it a go. You can find it on iTunes, or the website, americanbiographies.webs.com. And, to make it easy, there's a link on my website to boot. So, this is, I confess, a bit of a bits and bobs episode, or at least one where we have a couple of topics. One of the things we've not covered for a while is the state of towns in England, so today we're going to put that right and I can hear the sigh of relief as I say it. Then I thought we might talk about the Northumbrian literary renaissance just briefly. The historical equivalent of eating ice cream. Well, sort of, anyway. When we last talked about towns, it was basically to mark their passing and demise. The big picture was that by 400 all the towns of Roman Britain had basically ceased to operate as towns, become more of a meeting place and playground of the very rich and public administrators. And by 500, towns were toast. Small towns simply disappeared. The former big public towns died, but were too big to disappear. London's an amazing example. The massive walls and buildings of the deserted Roman city, Londonburg increasingly dilapidated as its buildings are robbed for materials, overgrown with weeds and inhabited by animals. We have a surviving manuscript from the 10th century called the Exeter Book. It contains a number of poems. Listeners to the History of England 
will know they contain a number of the Anglo-Saxons' favourite pastime, riddles. But there's a poem in it called The Ruin, which captures a bit of the rather haunting, melancholic feeling of those deserted examples of former glory. So I'm going to try and read poetry, which is slightly scary, and this is translated by somebody called Sean Eckhart. Wondrous is this wallstead wasted by fate, battlements broken, giants' work shattered. Roofs are in ruin, towers destroyed, broken the barred gate, rhyme on the plaster, walls gape, torn up, destroyed, consumed by age. Earth grip holds the proud builders, departed long lost, and the hard grasp of the grave until a hundred generations of people have passed. Often this wall outlasted, hoary with lichen, red-stained withstanding the storm, one rain after another. The high arch has now fallen. Bright were the halls, many the baths, high the gables, great the joyful noise, many the mead hall full of pleasures, until fate the mighty overturned it all. Slaughter spread wide, pestilence arose, and death took all those brave men away. Their bulwarks were broken, their halls laid waste, the cities crumbled, those who would repair it laid in the earth. And so these halls are empty, and the curved arch shed its tiles, torn from the roof. There's more, but I think that's enough poetry for one day, don't you? It feels a bit like something from The Lord of the Rings, or Charlton Heston, kneeling in the surf before the half-buried Statue of Liberty, crying his final curse. In their place, the new society that grew up was based around village settlements, and indeed the tribute centres that we've seen appear already, particularly in the royal villes like Tamworth and Rendlesham and Yeavering. In economies which were based on exchange and barter, or payment in kind. Now that's not to say there weren't some exotic goods that came from far away, garnet and amber from India, for example, ivory rings from Ethiopia, tableware from Francia, but it's on a titchy tiny weeny scale by comparison with the glory days. But, after 600, there are signs of revival. It used to be thought that the revival of English towns was entirely driven by the kings. The historians no longer believe it was that easy, and that there are a number of different factors driving this revival, but kings do have a lot to do with it. In episode 7, we talked about the end of Pender, and how he was the end of something to a large degree rather than the beginning, that kingship was changing as kingdoms became more settled and larger and complex. One of the things that meant was that kings really needed a reliable source of wealth. They had a big household sitting around eating bonbons, churchmen looking for support, families to sell off, borders and justice to maintain. Those tribute centres were good and all, but payment in kind was deeply inconvenient. I've just raised an army of 500 hairy guys. I'll send them all a pig as payment. Really wasn't a great system. So kings had something of a conundrum. What they needed was a simple way of exchanging big things like sheep, cattle, pigs, slaves into little things. Now there was gold. And in the olden days, the days of yore, when men were men and women were women and furry creatures from Alpha Centauri were furry creatures from Alpha Centauri, you'd have just gone a raiding. Now, glorious raids that generated gold, like the Staffordshire Horde, were all very well. But they ended up generating one in response, and the income flow was nowhere near reliable enough. So, something of a poo. And then some bright spark said, Hey, didn't those Romans used to have stuff called money for that very purpose? And don't those namby-pamby, beret-wearing Franks have the same thing? As early as 600, 
Ethelbert's laws express values for compensation in shillings rather than, for example, mm, pigs. There were small amounts of Byzantine coins in circulation, but again, not enough in quantity. In the early 600s, some coins were minted in gold based on Frankish designs and making some attempt to standardise, given that they needed to be used for international trade as well. But the royal control of mints wasn't great. Also, gold was very rare, and all over Europe, kings turned away from gold towards silver, as silver from the harsh mountains in Germany improved the supply of bullion. So Anglo-Saxon England followed suit, and thus was born the skeat, the old English word for money, wealth and coins. There is a strong likelihood or possibility that the Anglo-Saxons actually called them pennies, and there's an old tradition that the word penny comes from pender. But anyway, from the start of the 670s, skeaters became common. The quality at that stage could be pretty variable, but it's a start. So that's great. Now there's a means of exchange. What kings needed now was a way to convert all those pigs and sheep and goats and things into nice skeater. And this, ladies and gentlemen, this is where towns come in. As I said, there are lots of reasons why towns started to reboot. As kingdoms emerged, while not to the extent you and I know it, there was more stability. As kings controlled the networks for transportation, moving around got just a little easier. Travelling down a road in winter before Mr McAdam was not trivial. With more stability and better connections came greater demand for fancy goods. But kings do play a part in all of this. A number of towns began to emerge, and many are associated with royal centres. So in East Anglia, for example, it's Ipswich which is only 12 miles from the Royalville at Rendlesham. So kings played an enthusiastic part in encouraging towns to grow. Robin Freeman, in her book Britain After Rome, uses Ipswich in Suffolk, East Anglia, as an example of how these towns begin to reappear. So why don't we do the same? The genesis of Ipswich appears to be less as a town and more a sort of emporium. That is to say, a place where maybe foreign traders would appear a few times a year, where local farmers and artisans would tip up every so often to meet others and sell their wares, or where warlords or East Anglian kings would come to sell slaves they'd gathered in one of their many wars and spats. And this seemed to be what happened in the 6th century on the River Gipping in Suffolk. But just turning up and hoping was all very well, but a bit hit and miss. How disappointing to have done all that work and had a wasted journey. So, somewhere around 600, things began to get more formalised, and Ipswich was born. Wick, or Witch, incidentally, is a common ending for these settlements, London Wick, for example, or Hamwich, which became modern Southampton. During the 7th century, there wasn't a lot of difference between Ipswich and any large rural centre. The quality of the manufactured goods wasn't much greater, suggesting there wasn't massive specialisation in Ipswich. The majority of people living there would have been local. But it was that emporium, and foreign traders would come to find a market. There is some evidence of foreigners staying and putting up houses. From the 720s, a few towns, Ipswich, York, Southampton, London, expanded rapidly. Metalled roads appeared in the town. Houses and workshops were structured behind frontages that led out onto the main street, which suggested markets. It's, relatively speaking, titchy-tiny, Maybe Ipswich and Southampton got to two to three thousand people, London somewhere between five and ten. 
Ipswich then boomed, because it moved from being just an emporium and crossroads to being a specialist producer. It had easy access to water, tick, to London clay, tick. It had a market and distribution channels, tick, tick. So it began to produce pottery, and it began to produce pottery on an industrial scale using industrial techniques. And they sold their wares well beyond the Ipswich hinterland, beyond the kingdom's borders, as far south as Kent and as far north as Yorkshire. By the mid-8th century then, these centres were recognisably towns. But they were still different to later towns since their population was quite seasonal and grew and fell dramatically through the year. Good weather was one driver. When weather improved, ships sailed and trade picked up. Another would be the autumn months and the need to sell excess produce and livestock. Many households would practice more than one craft to cover themselves for the slow periods, for example, and therefore specialisation could still be quite limited. However, there is some evidence of a kind of guiding agency, whether that be king or town community, which builds roads and markets, builds embankments along rivers, that sort of thing. We also know that kings took a fierce interest in controlling and profiting from trade. For the Mercian kings, getting hold of London was crucial. Once they had control of London, they could use it to shift the goods they collected, whether from rural tribute centres or from their specialist centres. So, for Mercia, for example, Droitwich produced large quantities of salt. But it wasn't just the produce of their lands that gave them wealth, it was the opportunity to tax commerce. So in the late 7th century, we see evidence for the first time of the Wickreave, the town reeve. And by the 8th century, there's evidence of kings collecting tolls from traders and merchants. Not personally, you understand, sitting in a little booth, but, you know getting somebody to collect tolls from traders and merchants, and also tolls from those travelling to and from the trading centres. Outside of towns, there's also some developments in the rural economy. There's some evidence that settlements began to be more organised and more specialised in what they produce, and therefore more market-oriented. This presupposes, of course, the existence of towns where surpluses could in fact be sold. There's also evidence of a shift away from lighter, marginal but easier to plough land to heavier, more productive land, and with it an increase in the area under cultivation. Some of the reason for this growth is the church, oddly enough. Monasteries were themselves centres of craft production, but also the church more generally provided concentrations of relatively wealthy workers that generated demand for produce. And at the same time, by the 8th century, the money supply of Skeata was much stronger and helping to fuel trade. By the late 8th century then, the broad economic picture is a rosy one of recovery and growth. The growth of stability, which is a word to be used with caution in Anglo-Saxon England and very much a relative word. The stability after the death of Pender had other benefits in literature and learning and education. Put simply, in the European Championship of Literature and Learning, England in 650 was first-round knockout fodder for the big boys. It was a mainly illiterate pagan culture coming through the maelstrom of violence and kingdom formation that left no one free to sit around eating bonbons and reading and writing books, or teaching others to do so. But, just 100 years later, England could boast of a group of scholars of European renown. From where we sit, Old English poems, though hardly a massive canon, was still the largest collection by far written in the old Germanic languages. 
Whatever your attitude to the church, this would not have happened without the conversion, and not just because, of course, with the church came writing. Adopting in Christianity gave the Anglo-Saxons access to a far wider community of learning throughout Europe, and, of course, it brought monks, otherwise known as people with time and protection to learn. So this is sometimes called the Northumbrian Renaissance, because although the southern kingdoms had their part to play, it was the great Northumbrian institutions that mainly produced the scholars of European renown. Bede, of course, stands head and shoulders above the lot. I probably warbled on about Bede and the ecclesiastical history and all that, but might be worth noting he also invented the Anno Domini chronological system, you know, just BTW. The foundation of Bede's success owed a lot to members of the church who came from the Mediterranean world and laid foundations of learning. Theodore, who came from Tarsus, and Hadrian from North Africa, are two principal examples. We know very little indeed about education in Anglo-Saxon England, but from Bede we see hints that church leaders like these did establish schools to generate future Anglo-Saxon scholars, certainly in Kent and East Anglia. Other early pioneers, such as Benedict, laid foundations through the creation of libraries in monasteries that fed the imagination and learning of later Anglo-Saxon authors. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. So although Bede is the most famous of these, two others achieved European renown. Aldhelm was abbot of Malmesbury and a prolific writer in Latin. The Oxford Dictionary of National Biography has the delightful assessment, quote, The monotony of Aldhelm's metre is compensated by the brilliance of his poetic vocabulary. I quote, ladies and gentlemen, because I've never read a single line of Aldhelm's writings in Latin or English and I have no intention of doing so. Therefore, I freely admit that I'm relying here purely on the opinion of others. I did do Latin at school for five painful years of agony and despair and learnt precisely zip, except the odd Latin tag. The other chap was Alcuin. And again, what I know from a personal sense of Alcuin's writing could be written on the inside of a ping-pong ball, but in a sense, Alcuin is the final product of England's cultural revival before the Vikings come along and submerge it under a fresh wave of violence. Alcuin was born somewhere around 740, and as just a small boy he was handed across to the cathedral church in York. He spent his young adulthood there, and many of his writings date from then. But his big break came in the 780s when on a trip to Rome he met the Frankish Emperor Charlemagne at Parma. From there he became an advisor at the court of the great emperor. His reputation as a poet, teacher, thinker had its ups and downs as far as I can see, but for an Englishman to become a royal advisor at the most glittering court in Europe was without doubt a sign of his achievement. It then seems like an appropriate time to talk very briefly about the whole thing about producing illuminated manuscripts, the artisan side, since we're going to be relying on the things for a few hundred years. Not that it's a specialist subject of mine, but I do remember seeing something on the telly and thinking, well, golly! Something ever so slightly stronger than that, actually, but golly, is a starter. It's easy to grasp why there were so few books in days medieval, because there was no printing press and everyone had to write by hand. That bit is easy to get hold of. 
but what's easier to ignore is that everything was written on parchment or vellum and that must have had almost as much impact. Now you probably all know this, but parchment is created by using animal skin and by golly what a process it is. First of all you have to catch and kill your calf, though that's probably the easy bit, and then skin it. The pelts were then soaked in a lime solution to loosen the fur which was then removed. It was then put on a stretcher while wet and then the skin was scraped using a knife with a curved blade and as the skin dried the parchment maker adjusted the tension of the stretcher so that the skin was always taut. And this cycle of scraping and stretching was repeated over several days until the desired thinness had been achieved. And that is just one skin. About 170 calves were needed for one copy of the Gutenberg Bible. The manual effort and amount of resource required to produce enough to create a manuscript is horrifying. Still, I'm focusing on the artisan part of this, but then comes the art, creating the beautiful illuminated book itself. So, once your surface was ready, the parchment was ruled, usually with a lead point or coloured ink. Otherwise, you get what happens when I write on a flip chart in some enormously low-powered meeting at work. Everything on the right side tends up pointing south rather than east. The scribe wrote with a quill pen made from the feather of a goose or swan, with the end of the feather, of course, cut to form the writing nib. A slit cut in the middle of the nib allowed the ink to slow smoothly to the tip of the pen. Which was great, but a bit dull. Hence illumination. The artist started by making an outline drawing with lead point or quill and ink. Next, he or she painted the areas to receive gold leaf with a sticky substance, such as something called bowl, which is a refined red clay, or gum ammoniac, which is basically sap. The gold leaf was then laid down and burnished or rubbed to create a shiny surface. And finally, the illuminator applied paints, which were made from a wide variety of colouring agents, ground minerals, organic dyes extracted from plants, and chemically produced colourants. These pigments were usually mixed with egg white to form a kind of paint called tempera. So, once the writing and illumination had been completed, the parchment sheets were folded and nested into groups called gatherings, which is rather cute. The gatherings were ordered in their proper sequence and sewn together onto cords or leather thongs, that served as supports. Once the sewing was finished, the end of the supports were laced through channels carved into the wooden boards that formed the front and back covers of the book. The binding was usually then covered in leather or a decorative fabric. Simple, and no doubt as cheap as chips. Not. If you're looking for fun, of course, it's the funny drawings that turn up in the margins created by bored monks looking for a small bit of excitement in their lives, much to the benefit of Terry Gilliam and Monty P, of course. Some of these things are absolutely beautiful. My personal favourite is one of a rabbit mounted on a snail with the head of a man holding a lance and charging a dog mounted on a rabbit. I mean, seriously. There's a link to a fun article on my website so you can go and look at some of the absurd things that I'm talking about. In a way, maybe the most impressive symbol of Anglo-Saxon England's revival and rejoining of the European community, with a little E and a little C, may I stress, don't want any controversy here, is a phenomenon called the Continental Missionaries. Last week, I mentioned that Anglo-Saxon England started the 7th century a pagan kingdom, and by the late 7th century finished at least officially as a Christian one. 
Equally, through the early 7th century, England was a target for missionaries and Christians coming over from the continent to convert. By the end of it and through the 8th century, all that turned completely around. English religious men started to travel over to parts of the continent to convert pagans there to Christianity themselves, with all the enthusiasm of the newly converted. This had a significant cultural impact, in particular in spreading an artistic and scribal tradition to northern continental Europe. Scribal being an odd word. Essentially, manuscripts from England ended up in northern Europe and gave the newly converted there something to copy and inspire them. The common urge to travel abroad in the service of God was probably fourfold. The first came from the Celtic tradition of voluntary exile for the love of God a tradition which had inspired monks from Ireland to come to England, as we heard last time, and who made such an impact in Northumbria. The second was, of course, the desire to spread the word of God, the newly converted Anglo-Saxons demonstrating their eagerness and fresh commitment. Thirdly, there was the potential to impress and gain advancement through the church. Alcuin of York had something of a peach position at the court of Charlemagne, travelling was one way of improving your CV. And finally, there was a sense of kinship, because the places that the English missionaries were travelling to included what they saw as their original homeland, to Frisia and Old Saxony. It wasn't just the increasing confidence and experience of the church in England that led to all of this. A few things came together. The growth of Carolingian power on the continent from Charles Martel to Charlemagne, Charles the Great, the newly revived emperor of the Western Roman Empire, or the Holy Roman Empire, as we come to call it. You might want to nip, or indeed hop, along to the History of England, episode 55, to find out a bit more about all of that. But the growth of Carolingian power opened up new countries for missionaries, defended at least to a degree by his power and name. And meanwhile, the growth of trade and the the towns with which we started this podcast helped as well, because the links between England and the continent were growing, And so it helped you practically by allowing you to hop onto a ship and go places and find someone to help you at the end of it. Through the 8th and 9th century, the outflow of Englishmen into the continent and to Rome grew. We can see it in some of the Anglo-Saxon kings that decided to end their lives in Rome, Caedwalla and Ina, for example. And there's no doubt there were many more examples of that. So, as an example of this continental missionaries thing, let's have a look at the life of one of them. Let us talk about the life of a chap called Boniface, who was born in Devon in the 670s. He was entered into a monastery as a child and became the head of the monastic school at a monastery near Southampton on the south coast of England. I have been confidently told, if unconvincingly told, that life begins at 40, which is clearly twaddle since it starts at naught as far as I can see, and 40 appears to be simply the time at which the wheels start coming off, but maybe I'm being too literal. But anyway... Boniface's second life appears to have started around 40, fair enough, when he decided that a trip to evangelise the pagan Frisians on the coast of what we now call the Netherlands was the perfect answer to the need for a change of air and scenery. Boniface travelled to Frisia, to Rome, to Thuringia and Hesse in modern Germany. Boniface's life and career kind of demonstrates many of those reasons that drove the continental missionaries. When the 40-year-old second lifer set out from Southampton, it was the trade routes that he travelled on first, from the trading settlement at London to Frisia on a merchant's boat. 
the growth of Carolingian power carried Boniface along, because in 738, Charles Martel had led campaigns against the old Saxons, which led to Boniface's missionary travels. His rather unsuccessful missionary travels, truth be told. And actually, it gave Boniface a deal of advancement in the church. He became an archbishop, a mover and shaker in the Frankish church and leader of reform. All of which sounds like a hoot, but it was dangerous stuff. Boniface's life speaks of greater connectivity than we might think between England and the continent, more traffic going back and forth. But let's not get carried away. In 753, the reasonably ancient Boniface set out for Frisia once again. He and his party were set on by a bunch of bandits, variously described as robbers or grumpy pagans out for revenge. We don't really know which. As they attacked, Boniface told his companions, Cease fighting, lay down your arms, for we are told in Scripture not to render evil for good, but to overcome evil by good. Boniface was a holy man, apparently he persuaded them, and as a result they were all slaughtered. In a church in a place called Fulda is a codex from this encounter, which still bears the cuts of the axes and swords of their attackers. Anyway, the point of all this, apart from telling you a story about Boniface, is that by the end of the 7th century, the Anglo-Saxon church was confidently looking outward, was helping England become a more central part of the continental community, starting the march towards standardised bananas, which, of course, is where it all ends up. This is a period also from which a small canon of secular poetry survives. There is, of course, Beowulf. Now, I have to say that I sometimes feel, as I feel about the writings of Chaucer and Shakespeare, that these were expressly designed to torture small children. But over the years, I have grown to realise this is not an acceptable position, and I would like to apologise publicly for my personal and intellectual failure. And while you can get too much of heroic verse, there's something about Beowulf that takes you inside the smoky hall of a lord or a minor king with the pain and just general dampness of daily life in England put to one side for a short time while the bard takes them all to the world as it should be. His father's warriors were wound round his heart with golden rings bound to their prince by his father's treasure. So young men build the future wisely open-handed in peace protected in war so warriors earn their fame and wealth is shaped with a sword. You should really hop along to Kevin Stroud's History of English podcast if you want to know more about Beowulf, and I'm not going to presume to add to the reams of ink, as you don't have reams of ink, do you? The wells of ink spilt about the poem, but just to say it's worth a whirl, seriously. The thinking is that the poem, the earliest written version of which existed only in an 11th century copy, is based on an Anglian original, probably 7th or 8th century, though by the 11th century it was written in West Saxon. It is, of course, the heroic tale of the struggles of the eponymous hero against the vicious Grendel and his mum, the dragon of the barrow, and the ups and downs of his struggles and his leadership of the Geats. It is a poem not given to understatement. Beowulf is a wonderful poem in its own right, of course, but it tells us also there is an aristocratic tradition, an elite with the time and wealth to patronise bards and poets and feasting. The Exeter book I mentioned contains a number of other poems, one of which, The Ruin, we heard at the top of the episode. I'm not quite sure what's come over me, to be honest. To include all this sort of stuff in a history podcast, I'm more of a doggerel man myself, the young bard of Japan, that sort of thing, which 
for reference as a thinly veiled excuse for me to read it out to you goes like this. There was a young bard of Japan whose verses they never would scan. When told this was so, he said, yes, I know, but I always try and get as many words into the last line as I absolutely possibly can. Boom, and if you will, tish. Anyway, back to secular poetry in Anglo-Saxon England. There is a small tradition outside Beowulf of secular poetry, but it is titchy-tiny. There is little of the voice of the Anglo-Saxon churl, for example. The church, fun suckers, didn't help in this. They were not keen about the idea of any secular interference in religious settings, for one thing. For another, there's a nice broad stream of sanctimonious why is anything other than God in any way interesting in the mix. Our Alcuin, for example, turned out to be something of a lemon eater by dismissing secular poetry, caustically asking what it had to do with God. That's the dog. An answer on the lines of nothing who cares would have been problematic at the time. The 8th century councils of Clovesho condemned even religious poems read in the secular style in the church environment, pronouncing that the Holy Scripture should not be mutilated and disfigured as if it was heroic verse. Of course, Christianity begins to insert itself into poetry as time goes by, and probably the most famous of these is the poet Cadamon. Cadamon is the first English poet whose name is known, and we know of him from Bede. Though some of the poetry, rightly or wrongly attributed to him, comes from other sources. Cadamon lived during the late 7th century, and the little poetry we have from him blends the traditional, alliterative, heroic poetry with Christian themes. And so we have the best-known and most famous Cadmon's Hymn. To be brutally honest, I say most famous, but I suspect all these things are relative, and if you were to ask for a rendition of Cadmon's Hymn down the boozer on a Saturday night, I think you might be lucky to get more than a blank stare, and it could be worse. But for better or worse, here it is. Now we must honour the guardian of heaven, the might of the architect and his purpose, the work of the father of glory as he, the eternal Lord, established the beginning of wonders. He first created for the children of men heaven as a roof. The holy creator, then the guardian of mankind, the eternal Lord, afterwards appointed the middle earth, the lands for men, the Lord Almighty. There's a good version of that in Old English on YouTube, the link for which you can find on my website. Plus, I'll try and do a link for Beowulf and Seamus Heaney and all that sort of thing. Of course, we can't know how much of a tradition Cademon sparked, or at least that he was part of, given the vagaries of manuscript survival. We do know of another named Old English poet called Coonwolf, and of course there were bound to have been more. Most of this later poetry, again, presupposes the existence of an aristocracy with time to listen, reflect and enjoy, to whom the people and history of sacred history could be made as interesting as the old heathen themes. So, that's more than enough fun for one decade. Do not forget to hop along to the Anglo-Saxon England website, which I advise you to find through the link on the History of England website, to be honest. There's quite a lot this week. Maps of English towns, links to YouTube. It's a cultural, corneoed, blessed copia. And make no mistake, I have some donators to thank this week, which is a relief. To my blessed and most glorious monthly donators, Nancy, Oak, Mary, Bernard, James, Russell, M-A-C-R-A-C, Henry, Alan, Simon and Richard. And then new donators this week, Phil, Lorna, Tom, Brian, 
Ian. Likewise, Ian. Yay. Fruples. Kevin, was there ever a genuine choice? So, all well and good. Next week, it's back to the Wars of the Roses on the other channel. Then I have a week off. Yay! So not until the 6th of March when we will meet again. I shall look forward to it. Good luck, everyone. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.